back to the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyse some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome back to History for Atheists. In my first episode on the myths of the Great Library of Alexandria, I looked at the common misconceptions about the library and the history around what it was and what it actually wasn't. But the key focus of the stories about the library that get many atheists angry is the idea that it was destroyed by a mob of Christians. The dramatic force of the new atheist moral fable of the Great Library not only comes from the library's supposed size and unique nature, but also from this alleged cataclysmic and tragic end. The moral of this story has added impact if the Great Library ends in a violent catastrophe. So this is the story that tends to get told by those who use the tale as a stick with which to beat Christianity. The fact is, however, that libraries are delicate institutions and most decline slowly rather than ending in a sudden disaster, or as in the Great Library's case, decline slowly while also suffering a series of disasters. Anyone who works in library services will tell you that the main enemy of a library's continuation is a lack of funding. Ancient libraries in particular needed constant financial patronage from their founders and sponsors to survive. Papyrus scrolls decayed and fell apart from use, and suffered damage from mice and other vermin, and in a period where artificial light tended to be from open oil lamps, were in constant danger from fires, great and small. So the museum's collection, like all ancient libraries, needed a large staff to undertake the constant and unending task of repairing, replacing and recopying books. And these staffs, even when made up of slaves, were pretty expensive to maintain. During the museum's heyday in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, the funding for this labour and upkeep of the institution generally would have been regular and reliable. The museum was, after all, one of the jewels in the crown of the Ptolemaic kingdom, and it sat in the Brucarian, or royal quarter, where the Ptolemies themselves lived. By the 1st century BC, however, there is some indication that the prestige of the institution had begun to decline. In his first two centuries, the museum's directors were famous scholars, renowned for their intellects throughout the Greek-speaking world. By the time of the later Ptolemies, however, we find administrators, court favourites, and even a former commander of the palace guard taking up the role, which seems to have become, as Lionel Casson puts it, a political plum to be awarded to flunkies rather than scholars. This continued under the Romans in the first century AD, with Tiberius Claudius Babilius being awarded the post by Claudius, though he at least was something of a scholar, if not a leading intellect. It is likely that the later Ptolemies began to neglect the institution, and the Roman imperial patronage of it was possibly less than reliable. But war has always been one of the main destroyers of libraries down the ages, and the Great Library's slow decline was marked by several sacks of the Royal Quarter, which eventually led to the end of the museum. The first and probably most significant came in 47 BC, 
when Julius Caesar took the side of Cleopatra in her claim on the Ptolemy's throne and besieged her younger brother, the boy king Ptolemy XIII in Alexandria. Caesar's own account mentions that he burned a fleet in the docks of the city, but he makes no mention of this fire destroying anything else. His account was continued by his lieutenant Aulus Hirtius in his Alexandrian War, and he too makes no mention of the fire damaging the city, though he does go out of his way to say Alexandria is well-nigh fireproof because its buildings contain no wooden joinery and are held together by arched construction and are roofed with rough cast or tiling, which could be read as an attempt at a defence against accusations of damage through fire, given his role in the siege. Perhaps he protests a little bit too much. The earliest account of Caesar's siege damaging Alexandria comes from a lost work by Livy by an epitome by Florus, which describes Caesar burning the area around the docks to deprive enemy archers of a position from which they could fire on his troops. And this is echoed by Lucan. It's Plutarch who first depicts this fire as destroying the great library in an almost casual mention that perhaps assumes that this was common knowledge. In this war, to begin with, Caesar encountered the peril of being shut off from the water since the canals were dammed up by the enemy. In the second place, when the enemy tried to cut off his fleet, he was forced to repel the danger by using fire, and this spread from the dockyards and destroyed the great library. And thirdly, when the battle arose at Pharos, he sprang from the mole into a small boat and tried to go to the aid of his men in their struggle. But the Egyptians sailed up against him from every side, so he threw himself into the sea and with great difficulty escaped by swimming. Aulus Gellius's mention of the Great Library says that the collection numbered nearly 700,000 volumes and then adds that these were burned during the sack of the city in our first war with Alexandria, referring to Caesar's siege. Dio Cassius gives a slightly longer account. After this, many battles occurred between the two forces, both by day and by night, and many places were set on fire, with the result that the docks and storehouses of grain, among other buildings, were burned, and also the library, whose volumes, it is said, were of the greatest number and excellence. There is some debate about how literally we can take the reports that the whole Great Library was destroyed, especially given that the docks area of Alexandria were some distance from the museum's most likely location. The fact that so many writers agree that Caesar's fire destroyed the Great Library simply can't be ignored, however, and at the very least the fire does seem to have destroyed a substantial portion of the book collection, probably stored in warehouses on the docks. It's clear that the losses were huge, as Plutarch tells the probably apocryphal story of Mark Anthony confiscating the whole collection of the Great Library of Pergamon and giving them to Cleopatra to replace the books lost in the fire. While this certainly was not the end of the museum, and so not the end of its whole book collection, writers from around the end of the reign of Caesar's dynasty onwards tend to refer to the Great Library in the past tense, and any surviving collection was probably greatly reduced after 47 BC. Scholarship continued in the museum, however, and the Roman emperors seemed to have continued its funding under their patronage when the Ptolemaic dynasty came to an end with the death of Cleopatra. Claudius built a new wing or annex to the museum, which was to house his works of history and see a mandated public reading of these works twice a year. That's the kind of thing you can do when you're an emperor. 
but it was the calamitous 3rd century AD that saw a succession of military disasters in Alexandria and seems to have brought a final end to the museum and to the library. In 1215 AD, the Emperor Caracalla punished Alexandria for the mockery of him with a wholesale massacre of its young men, after which his troops plundered parts of the city. It's not known if the museum was sacked in this action, but John Mallis records that its funding was stopped by the emperor at this time. The real end probably came in 272 AD. At this point, the Roman Empire had nearly collapsed and had broken into three parts, with the eastern portion, including Egypt, briefly annexed by the Kingdom of Palmyra, ruled by its queen Zenobia. The Emperor Aurelian undertook several campaigns that successfully reunited the Empire, which included a swift and bloody war against Zenobia and a successful siege and capture of Alexandria early in June 272. Aurelian's troops stormed the royal quarter, with the 4th century historian Ammianus Marcellinus noting, Alexandria's walls were destroyed and she lost the greater part of the city called Brucheon. If that sack wasn't the death blow for the institution, Diocletian probably finished the job when he too sacked the city when putting down an Egyptian revolt in 295 AD. The city was later devastated by a major earthquake centred on the island of Crete in 365 AD, and this triggered a tsunami. Ammianus gives a vivid description of the devastation this caused around the eastern Mediterranean, and says, In the raging conflict of the elements, the face of the earth was changed to reveal wondrous sights. For the mass of the waters, returning when least expected, killed many thousands by drowning, and with the tides whipped up to a height as they rushed back, huge ships, thrust out by the mad blasts, perched on the roofs of houses, as happened at Alexandria, and others were hurled nearly two miles from the shore. The devastation was so vast that 300 years later, the city of Alexandria still commemorated the disaster as a day of horror. The only mention of the museum after this is found in a late source, the 10th century Byzantine encyclopedia called the Suda, which describes the 4th century philosopher Theon as the man from the museum. It's hard to tell exactly what this means. Given that the museum was most likely long gone by Theon's time, it could be that some other successor museum had been established and Theon studied there. Or perhaps Theon's own school was referred to as the museum as a reference to the former institution. Or it could be that the man from the museum is a stylized honorific or even a personal nickname, meaning a scholar like one from the old days. The museum and its library were almost certainly a memory by the late 4th century, destroyed in a series of calamities after a long period of decline. But what is missing from all this evidence is any howling pyromaniacal Christian mob. If the Great Library ceased to exist in the century before Christianity came to power in the Empire, how did the Christians get stuck with the charge of destroying it? The answer lies not in the evidence about the Great Library, but in the history of its daughter library, an annex in the Serapeum. While the Great Library was never as large as some of the more fanciful accounts allege, it's clear its holdings were large enough that at least some of them were stored outside the museum. As already noted, this is probably why Caesar's burning of the dock area was seen as destroying a large part of the library's collection, and why there were at least two daughter libraries in the city, 
one in the Caesarean or Temple of Caesar, and another in the Separion or Serapeum, the Temple of Serapis, and possibly also a third site. Serapis was a Greek-Egyptian hybrid deity combining Zeus and Osiris, and his cult and temple were extremely popular in Ptolemaic Alexandria. The Ptolemaic temple burned down sometime in the 2nd century AD and was rebuilt in magnificent style, and it's possible its library was established at about this point. Tertullian mentions that this library included copies of the Old Testament, and Epiphanius, Bishop of Salamis, wrote that it was an annex of the museum's collection, saying, Later, another library was built in the Serapeum, which is called the daughter of the first one. In 391, the Serapeum was indeed torn down by Roman soldiers and a Christian mob. And it's here, finally, that we find the seed of the myth. There is, of course, no fire involved, and it's this daughter library that was supposedly destroyed, not the great library itself, which had ceased to exist by that point. But the myth is cobbled together from this episode and some garbled reflections of the story of Caesar's fire. The problem, however, is that there is no evidence that the Serapeum still contained any library in 391 AD and some good evidence indicating that it did not. The mythic version of the story of the destruction of the Serapeum gets told. It usually begins without explaining why the temple was attacked in the first place. These retellings focus on the supposed destruction of its library, so they tend to assume the mob was just there simply because they hated learning. But several accounts of the end of the temple note that it came as the climax of a series of attacks by pagans on Christians in reaction to the desecration of pagan idols. Sozomon's account details what happened next. They killed many of the Christians, wounded others, and seized the Serapion, a temple which was conspicuous for beauty and vastness, and which was seated on an eminence. This they converted into a temporary citadel, and hither they conveyed many of the Christians, put them to the torture, and compelled them to offer sacrifice. Those who refused compliance were crucified, had both legs broken, or were put to death in some cruel manner. And when the sedition had prevailed for some time, the rulers came and urged the people to remember the laws, to lay down their arms, and to give up the Serapeum. Sozomon was writing in the following century, and, as a Christian, may not be reliable on all the lurid details. But Socrates Scholasticus, writing a little closer to the events, confirms that many Christians were killed in the unrest. The pagan zealots who hold up in the temple were led by the fiercely anti-Christian philosopher Olympius and a number of his colleagues from the militantly pagan Iamblichan school. Two of these, Heladius and Ammonius, were to be among Socrates Scholasticus's teachers in Athens, where they often proudly boasted of their roles in the murders and torture in the Serapeum, with Heladius claiming he had personally killed nine Christians. Among the victims whose bodies were found in the temple later was the esteemed Christian rhetor and scholar Gesius, who was, judging from a later mocking poem by Pilatus, starved, crucified, possibly had his legs broken and was then thrown into a pit. So Socrates' account is very useful on the sequence of events and what happened next. A standoff followed with Roman troops surrounding the temple while negotiations went on with the pagan militants inside. The situation must have continued for many weeks as a petition went to the emperor in Constantinople about the siege and Theodosius ruled that the pagans should be pardoned for their murders and allowed to leave, but that the temple should be demolished. 
Angry at this compromise, as the soldiers began to carry out the order, the Christian mob joined in the destruction and made sure the great idol of Serapis was also destroyed. We have no less than five accounts of the destruction of the Serapeum. Rufinius Tyrannius, Socrates Scholasticus, Sozomen, Theodoret, and Eunapius of Antioch. This is rare in ancient history and actually makes it one of the best documented events in this period. What is significant about these accounts is that not one of them makes any mention of a library. No library is mentioned at all, and there are certainly no references to one being destroyed, let alone any scholarly laments about it being the last remnant of the Great Library of Alexandria. Some try to argue that Christian chroniclers would be ashamed of the crime of destroying the last remnant of the Great Library and so hushed it up in their accounts. This argument is rather hard to sustain. Firstly, Christian historians of the time did record other Christian acts against pagans that they considered shameful, including the later assassination of Hypatia. So at least one or two of the four Christians who described the end of the Serapeum could be expected to lament the loss of the library. These were scholars, after all. Socrates Scholasticus, who condemned the murder of Hypatia in no uncertain terms, was a novation heretic, and thus no fan of the Bishop Theophilus, who urged on the crowd of the temple's destruction. Yet he makes absolutely no mention of a library either. Even more significantly, Eunapius of Antioch was a pagan, a scholar and a vehement anti-Christian, so he had every reason to condemn any destruction of a library, yet he too makes no mention of it. The great defender of new atheist bad history, the ubiquitous Richard Carrier, has attempted to dismiss the silence of Eunapius by blithely claiming that his account is too brief. Carrier assures his online fan club all he describes is the raid on the pagan statues and some vague looting otherwise. His concern was clearly with the offence to the gods. This is, as usual with Carrier, total nonsense. Eunapius's account in the, his Lives of the Philosophers runs to 548 words in English translation. Of these, a full 245 are not about pagan statues or offence to the gods, but are devoted wholly to the detailed denigration of the ignorant Christians who destroyed the beautiful temple. He calls them men in appearance who led the lives of swine. He says they fettered the human race to the worship of slaves and mocks them for their veneration of martyrs' relics and their general stupidity. Given that around 40% of his account is taken up with this scorning and mocking of these Christians, it is very strange that the scholar neglects to mention in his condemnation that these ignorant oafs also just happened to destroy one of the best libraries in the world. The lack of any mention of a library is actually most likely explained by concluding that there was no longer a library there by 391. Temples had begun to be starved of funds with the conversion of the empress to Christianity and the slower but gradual conversion of many rich patrons and city benefactors. By the end of the century, the overwhelming majority of Alexandria's population was Christian. The Serapeum survived most of the 4th century, but it is very likely that the expense of maintaining an extensive library would have been huge and probably unsustainable. Significantly, writing about 378 AD, Ammianus Marcellinus gives a detailed description of the Serapeum and mentions its libraries using the past tense. In here have been valuable libraries, and the unanimous testimony of ancient records declares that 700,000 books, 
brought together by the unremitting energy of the Ptolemies, were burned in the Alexandrian War when the city was sacked under the dictator Caesar. Ammianus is clearly muddling the Serapeum with the main museum library with his reference to Caesar's fire and the mythical 700,000 books, but the rest of his description of the temple is detailed and unique to his work in many respects. Other references in his work indicate that he had visited Egypt himself, probably around 363 AD, so it's most likely that his account of the temple is that of an eyewitness. This means his use of the past tense about the temple library is significant. Overall, the idea that there was still any library there when the temple was demolished is dubious at best, and almost certainly wrong. But the story has been passed down in various garbled forms, until it's become one of those things that people are convinced they somehow know happened, even though they have no idea why they believe this and can never give a source that describes this alleged event, for the very good reason that uh, no source exists. While Sagan and his successors in popular culture, like Stephen Greenblatt's book The Swerve, or journalist Catherine Nixie's polemic The Darkening Age, continue to pass the story down, its current shape can ultimately be traced to Edward Gibbon. Gibbon was one of the leading intellectuals of the Enlightenment, and his long antiquarian history, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, first published in 1776, was considered the definitive work on the subject for roughly another century. These days it's not highly regarded as history at all, though it's still considered a classic of English prose. Gibbon was writing before the modern academic discipline of history was properly established, and his work is highly polemical and driven by some very clear biases. One of these was his bias against Christianity. Gibbon had briefly converted to Catholicism in his youth, to the horror of his Protestant family, and then abandoned Christianity altogether, adopting a form of sceptical deism. So his book never misses an opportunity to get in a kick against Christianity, which Gibbon posited as one of the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire. In chapter 28 of his six-volume work, Gibbon gives a nicely lurid account of the upheavals in Alexandria, where the Bishop Theophilus is portrayed as a gleeful villain. After his version of the story of the demolition of the Serapeum, Gibbon laments the valuable library of Alexandria was pillaged or destroyed, and near 20 years afterwards, the appearance of the empty shelves excited the regret and indignation of every spectator whose mind was not totally darkened by religious prejudice. Of course, as I've already noted, None of the five accounts of the demolition of the temple mention any valuable library at all, so the empty shelves and their indignant spectators exist largely in Gibbon's imagination. His footnote to this refers to a comment by the 5th century Christian writer Orosius about Christians looting temple libraries in his time, but that's a reference to stealing precious books, not destroying them, and it's made as an aside in Orosius' account of Caesar's burning of the original museum library collection and has nothing to do with the Serapeum. So Gibbon's footnote is drawing a very long bow by citing Erosius at all. But the huge influence of Gibbon's work meant the idea of Christians destroying the great library of Alexandria became fixed in the popular imagination. Exactly how the popular myth became that they burned the library is unclear. That's probably, as I mentioned, a garbled conflation of the story of Caesar's burning of the collection and the Serapeum story in Gibbon. Certainly, any version of the story places great emphasis on the wild Christian mob actively destroying books. The 2009 movie Agora by Alejandro Amenabar 
presents a highly fictionalised and historically dubious story of Hypatia of Alexandria, and its whole first act presents a fantasy version of the demolition of the Serapeum, in which the destruction of the library, which is not mentioned in any of the sources, is a dramatic centrepiece. A subtitle in an early scene of Hypatia teaching informs us that this was in the Library of Alexandria, perpetuating Carl Sagan's myth that Hypatia was associated with the Great Library and was its last librarian. But later, one of the characters mentions the fire that destroyed the Mother Library, indicating that the writers knew the Serapeum Library and the Great Library were not the same thing. Though this is in a piece of background dialogue, while Hypatia is saying something else, so less attentive viewers may even miss it completely. When the action moves to the Christian demolition of the Serapeum, the focus is very much on their destroying its library. In fact, the demolition of the temple, which is the focus of all five accounts in the sources, is not depicted at all, while the burning of the library's collection, which is mentioned absolutely nowhere, is shown in great detail. At one point, as the Christian mob swarms through the temple gate, someone can even be heard shouting, burn the scrolls, as though this was the whole point of the exercise. Many reviewers of the movie express great sorrow at its impressive depiction of this momentous event, completely oblivious to the fact that it was complete fiction. The myth of the Great Library's destruction is further complicated by the fact that it has a different version with a different set of culprits. In this alternative version, the library somehow survives into the mid-7th century and is still in existence when Alexandria is conquered by the Arabs in 461 AD. Then, the story goes, the Caliph Umar was asked what to do about the Great Library's books and replied, if those books are in agreement with the Quran, we have no need of them, and if they are opposed to the Quran, destroy them. So the books were burned to heat the water in the Caliph's bathhouse. Here we have another quite different set of religious zealots destroying the library. Unfortunately, this story is highly dubious and almost certainly a much later folk tale. It isn't recorded or referred to at all for around 500 years and is first mentioned in the 12th century. Since it's a good story, it has found its way to Europe in the 16th century and was repeated by Christian writers as evidence of what barbarians those Muslims are. But even Gibbon couldn't find it convincing and for good reason. This doesn't stop it from being repeated by some atheists to this day, and some even manage the rather acrobatic feat of blaming both the Christians and, centuries later, the Muslims. Like all myths, this one is endlessly flexible. The story of the destruction of the Great Library is basically an Enlightenment fairy tale, cobbled together from disparate elements and bearing almost no relationship to accurate history. The library was not a secular establishment. It was not as large as is often claimed, it was not a particular centre of science, and it was not a wellspring of wondrous technology. Most importantly, it was not destroyed by a crazed Christian mob intent on the destruction of rationally based knowledge. The whole idea that the destruction of one ancient library could have single-handedly brought on the Dark Ages is totally incoherent, and that's leaving aside the fact that the popular conception of the Dark Ages is mostly gibberish to begin with. The idea that any ancient library could have survived into the modern era is also ridiculous, given that none of the many other libraries of the time did so. Roger S. Bagnall is characteristically scathing about this silly idea. 
he notes what he calls the given-like reflections of classic scholar Hugh Lloyd-Jones, who mused, if this library has survived, the Dark Ages, despite the dominance of Christianity, might have been a good deal lighter. Its loss is one of the greatest of many disasters that accompanied the ruin of the ancient world. Bagnall responds, this is to get things backward. It's not that the disappearance of a library led to a Dark Age, not that its survival would have improved those ages. Rather, the Dark Ages, if that's what they were, and in the Eastern Roman Empire, we may doubt the utility of such a concept, show their darkness by the fact that authorities both East and West lacked the will and means to maintain a great library. An unburned building full of decaying books would not have made a particle of difference. Like all new atheist pseudo-history, the myth of the burning of the great library is a caricature of the facts compressed into moral fable. Its constant repetition and resistance to any correction is a testament to both the historical illiteracy of the average new atheist and the ideological zeal with which they cling to convenient fictions. True rationalists reject garbled myths and examine history to understand it, not to prop up convenient ideological fictions. This is a simplistic myth and it really deserves to die. See you again here soon. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog for an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day.